0: So in, uh, in 2008, um, my wife and I were living in Eugene, Oregon, which I love Oregon. Anybody in here love Oregon? Anybody Oregon fans? Yeah, Oregon. Yeah, several people. Nine o'clock, I had like one person that was excited. That was it. So thank you guys. Uh, Oregon's amazing. Like it's this beautiful place. Uh, I mean, there's so much to see there. And we had a friend that was coming to visit us who lived in the Southeastern United States and she loves the outdoors. So Amy and I thought, hey, let's surprise her. When she flies in, we'll take her camping and she won't even know that it's coming, you know? And so we agreed, we'd pick her up at the Portland airport. And we were gonna drive her. Not only does she love camping, she loves climbing. And so we were gonna take her to Smith Rock State Park, which is like the birthplace of sport climbing. And so we were gonna pick her up and we did. And we said, hey, surprise, we're taking you camping. I know you didn't bring any gear. We brought enough stuff for you. And we left out of Portland, headed east, went over the Cascades into the high deserts that are east of the Cascade Mountains there. And a lot of people don't know that Oregon has deserts, but you know, on the east side of the Cascade Mountains, it's like these beautiful high deserts, just amazing. And so we were gonna camp there. It was it was springtime, which meant that during the day in the desert it was pretty warm, but in the evenings it got quite frigid. And so well we knew that she didn't bring anything, so we tried to bring yeah, extra sleeping bag, everything she needed. And one of the things I wanted to do is I was I was trying to be chivalrous. I knew that it would get cold at night. And we had three, we had two sleeping options. One, we had a two-man tent, and then we had our car. We drove a Honda Element at the time, and we thought, yeah, we well, can kind of make a bed in there, and it's pretty, pretty good. Well, I just thought, you know, to stay warm, the best thing to stay warm when you're camping is to have another human body there that radiates some warmth, and together you stay warm. So I was like, hey, tell you what, I'll take one for the team. Amy, you and Sarah sleep in the tent together where you'll stay warm, and, uh, and I'll just, I'll sleep in the car by myself, I'll be cold, you know, it'll be hard, I'll, I'll do that. And I really honestly thought I was doing the, the nice thing, until 6 a.m. the next morning when I hear a tap on the car window, and I'm just like snugged up in my sleeping bag, like sleeping like a rock, you know, it's like so warm, and I open my eyes, and there's like literally frost on the windows, and they've like cleared off a space on the window where they're like looking at me, like shivering, you know, and I, I realized in that moment I made the wrong choice, like I, I should have slept in the tent, should have let them know the car, but really didn't know. So I wake up and I get out of the car, I'm like, oh, I gotta make this right, you know? And they're both like making fun of me, like, yeah, way to go, master of chivalry. And I'm like, oh no, seriously. I was like, I'll build a fire, I'll build a fire to warm us up, because if there's ever anything that makes you feel like more of a man, it's building a fire when you're camping. So I was like, I'll build a fire, everything will be good. And then here's what I realized, is that I grew up camping in the Southeastern United States where firewood exists in abundance, you know? It just falls off the trees, literally, and you pick it up and you put it in the fire. It doesn't work that way in a desert, apparently. There's no trees. And so I start looking for firewood. We didn't bring any. There's nothing to burn. The only thing, literally the only thing that was there to burn were tumbleweeds. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen a tumbleweed. A tumbleweed is literally what it sounds like. It is a jumble of dried up weeds that, blow across the ground and they're really great for setting the tone in an old western but man they're terrible for anything else. They don't grow food. They don't grow leaves. They don't do anything and I thought hey they're dry. Surely they'll burn. So I grabbed a tumbleweed and I like compacted it down as much as I could. I put it in the fire pit and I'll tell you a tumbleweed will burn very quickly. Like you light it (laughs) and It's like a little puff of smoke and then it's just gone. It's left with ash. So I couldn't even build a fire to try to warm my family up. And I learned something about tumbleweeds in that moment. I'd never actually seen a tumbleweed. And I realized, you know, tumbleweeds are not good for a whole lot. They don't dig roots. They don't grow anything. You can't burn them. You can't produce warmth. You can't produce energy. They don't do a whole lot except for blow around wherever the wind wants to take them. that's about it you know, we're in this series called Rooted, living deeply in a hurried world. And last week, you know, we kind of looked at this idea that, man, if you want to live deeply in a world that's always on the go, always changing, you've got to be anchored in the Word of God. Remember Psalm 1? It says, and if you, if you will anchor yourself, if you will delight in the law of the Lord, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. Elsewhere in the Bible, in Isaiah 61, it says that God's people will be like mighty oaks of righteousness, but as I look around at the pace of life and I look at how it affects me, if I'm honest with myself, more often than not, I feel a whole lot more like a tumbleweed than I do a tree planted by a stream of water. And I don't know if I'm alone in that, but life is just, it never, it never lets up, does it? There's always something else coming at us, always something else just wanting our attention. And today, we're going to continue to look at what it means to be rooted. And we've looked at what it means to be rooted in Jesus. We've looked at what it means to be anchored in the Word of God. And today, we're going to look at what it looks like to be driven, not by the forces of culture or the pace of life, but instead to be driven by the vision, a vision of who God really is, not simply a concept or an idea of who He is. And so we're going to do this by looking in Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm gonna read uh, Isaiah chapter six, starting in verse one. I'll read all the way through the whole chapter, 13 verses. A- as I read, there's gonna be some words and some language that's kind of weird. Just bear with me. I'm gonna come back through and walk through and try to unpack all that's going on in this kind of strange story that seeks to help us get clarity on a vision for who God really is. So Isaiah chapter six, starting in verse one. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, Seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of these seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth, and he said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Take the heart of this people, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed." And then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be again laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord out of Isaiah 6. And so... I know this is kind of a strange reading kind of pulled out of the middle of, you know, we don't even know what's going on here. Who's Isaiah? Who's Uzziah? What are seraphim? All these things, and um, we're going to walk through all of that. But here's what you need to know just at a glance of what's happening here is this, this is the moment where one of the most prominent prophets in the history of God's people is summoned to step into the calling of his life. I mean, Isaiah, you know, in this moment, he would go on to write the book of Isaiah, which contains more prophecies of the coming of Jesus than any other prophetic work in the Old Testament. He would become the prophet that Jesus would quote almost more than any other prophet in the Old Testament. Isaiah, this prominent prophet, this is the moment where God gets his attention and invites him in to the service that he's gonna give his life for, literally. That's what's happening here. Now, in order to understand the bigness of this vision, it's helpful to kind of look at what happens in the middle of the story, what happens in Isaiah's heart, is that God, God kind of has this mission, And he says, hey, who's gonna go? And I I want you to notice the mission that he gives Isaiah. He basically says, hey, Isaiah, I've got a mission. I need someone to go. And here's how it's gonna go down is that you're gonna proclaim over and over again the words that I put in your mouth, but the hearts of the people you're proclaiming them to are gonna become so calloused because they're gonna hear you say it over and over again. Their hearts will be hardened by what you say instead of softened. He said, you're gonna say it over and over again, but their eyes are gonna see, but not perceive. Their ears are gonna become dull, and I want you to keep doing it. You can imagine being Isaiah, he's like, okay, God, like how long do you want me to do that? And he's like, until the city lies destroyed. Okay, awesome, like the city I live in is gonna be knocked clean, and you want me to keep doing this until literally the place I live is wrecked. Now, I don't know if you've ever been given an assignment that felt futile, but it's a little frustrating. When somebody gives you a job and says, oh, by the way, you're never going to succeed, but go ahead and do it. Like, it is really hard to get motivated to do a futile assignment that feels like it's only going to lead to frustration. And yet here's Isaiah, and he's like, cool, I'm in. Like, count me in, God. What in the world is going on in Isaiah's heart to make him want to step into an assignment that is doomed to fail? I think it's so important for us to get a glimpse under the hood of Isaiah's heart because here's the thing you need to know about following Jesus, is it's not all that different than what God says to Isaiah. You see, when Jesus invites us to follow him, here's what he says. He says, hey, anyone who would come after me, anyone who would be my disciple, my follower, then you need to be ready to deny yourself. You're entering into a life of self-denial instead of self-promotion. Anyone who wants to follow me must take up their cross. Anyone who wants to find their life must lose their life. Anyone who wants to follow me must become the servant of all over and over and over again. This is the way that Jesus frames following him. He even looks at his followers. He says, hey guys, listen, I got news for you. In this life, you will have trouble. You will have persecution. You will have hardship. This comes part and parcel in life with me as your Savior and as your Lord who's in. Man, what a horrible salesman, like why in the world would you ever pitch anything like that? And so why would we ever, why have millions of people over centuries since Jesus has been around chosen to opt in for life with Jesus? We find the key to this in what Isaiah experienced right here in Isaiah chapter six. And so here's what happens, it starts with verse one. It says, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, period. Man, that one sentence is like a treasure trove of information of what's going on in Isaiah's heart. Now I know a lot of us, you know, we've never heard of Isaiah, we don't know much about Isaiah, so let me unpack a little bit about what's happening here. Isaiah was king of Judah in the 8th century BC, okay? So here's what you need to know, a little history, is that God had chosen this people group, Israel, to be his covenanted representatives in the world, and then he set up a kingdom. He put a guy named David on the throne, and he said, hey, your throne will last forever, but then things started to go south a little bit, right? There was a civil war within the kingdom. The, the kingdom got torn apart and two different kings got put in power and you had the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Judah was in Jerusalem and uh, the kingdom of Israel was seated in Samaria. And when you read through the book of First and 2 Kings, especially Second Kings, you start seeing like all these wicked kings in Israel that completely forgot who God was. And in Judah, it was more of a mixed bag. In Jerusalem, the seat of power of the kingdom of Judah, you had some good kings and some bad kings, some who forgot the Lord, some who honored the Lord. And then finally, Uzziah shows up. Isaiah sits on the throne, and you can read his story in 2 Chronicles 26, and basically what happens is he sits on the throne, and it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Finally, a good king to sit on the promised throne that was supposed to last forever. You see, Isaiah, what he did during his kingdom, during his reign, 52 years he reigned as king. I mean, that's a heck of a run, 52 years imagine that would mean right now that if this was the last year of his reign, if we lived in a monarchy, it means that he came to power in 1967, which means he reigned for pretty much longer than most of us have been alive. (laughs) So your entire life, you've only known one king, and he's a good king. See, Isaiah, he finally began to restore dignity and respect to the kingdom of Judah, that other nations actually began to respect Judah again. He built up military might, he had a great army. He restored the walls around the city and built these tall towers on the walls. He even created and invented ways for them to defend themselves from the top of the city without getting hit by archers that were trying to get in. Isaiah reformed all these things and regained honor for the kingdom of Judah with the nations around them. Finally, a good king had come. And Isaiah had a front row seat for all of it. The guy who wrote this. See, Isaiah was actually invited to basically be the biographer of King Isaiah. He was gonna write the story of his life. You imagine being Isaiah, this young guy, he gets invited in to be a prophet, but also be the prophet in the king's inner court, where he gets to record the life of finally a great king. And everyone thought maybe finally the prophecy is gonna be fulfilled. But then what happened in Isaiah's reign is what happens to so many people who come to power. It said that Uzziah was good until he came to power and his power made him prideful. And what happened was he ended up entering into the temple in a way that was only authorized for the priests. The priests begged him not to do it, but he walked into the temple basically defying God's uh, glory and going in to do it for himself, what only God should be able to do, and God struck him with leprosy. This great king suddenly is reduced to nothing more than a leper. He's removed from the palace. He has to rule from a little side house and his son begins to rule in his place. And Isaiah is watching it all go down. The scholars kind of debate when Isaiah writes, in the year that King Isaiah died, they debate, was this when he literally died or was this when he was struck with leprosy? We don't really know. But what we know is that Isaiah has just seen the foundations that he was standing on get shaken. And Isaiah says, man, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord you notice he doesn't say, I came to believe in God. He says, I saw God, because he had a belief in God. But here's the thing, many of us believe in God. But what we believe in is actually just a construct or a concept of God that has been shaped largely by the circumstances and the culture that surrounds us. See, Isaiah had a concept of God, this nationalistic deity that would always look out for Judah and then suddenly it gets shaken and pulled out from under him and what he believed in, now he's beginning to question whether or not it's true. You know, this is what we do so often with God. We believe in a concept of God, a construct of God, but the only place that that concept is rooted or in the circumstances that are around us and the factors that determine that concept are kind of conditional. They kind of shift. In other words, we do this, we go, yeah, man, God is good. I feel good about God when things are good. When the stability of my family is intact and everything seems to be going well, yeah, God is good. Man, when my checking account is solid and stable, then yes, God is good. I feel good about who God is. Man, when our nation feels secure, man, God is good. God bless America. You know, when when things feel stable, when things feel good, then yes, God is good when the right relationship comes along, when things work out for me in my job. Man, God is good. You see, all of those things shift. All of those things are up for grabs. They all change. And what happens when the, the the circumstances that we've rooted our understanding of God in, when they begin to shift, suddenly the statement God is good gets shifted to, man, if God is good, then why did this happen? If God is good, man, why why did I lose the job? If God is good, then why why did he dump me? Why did she break up with me? If God is good, then why did the cancer come back? If, if God is good, then why, why am I still stringing together month to month financially and I can't seem to get my feet under me? If God is good, then why? That's kind of becomes the position of our hearts or we go, man, if God is good, then wouldn't he want me to be happy? If God is good, then wouldn't he be okay with me doing whatever I want to so long as it makes me happy? And this is kind of the way the world around us has conditioned us to think about God. Why would God ever ask me to deny something about myself if he truly wants me to be happy? I read an article this week, you know, and I don't remember who it was about. I'm terrible with pop culture. So if you ever ask me who somebody famous is, I'll like, always tell you I don't know who they are. But I remember reading this article about somebody famous in Hollywood somewhere, an actor. And uh, he was talking about he and his, his wife, and they, they disclosed to the media that they've decided to have an open marriage. You know, they're, they're swingers, or as he called it, they were living the lifestyle. And as he described why they came to that, he said, you know, we got married and we tried the whole monogamy thing, but the reality is is I'm just a deeply sexual man. And, you know, if I try to go without that, I'm just really not my best version of myself. So in other words, literally, he said, repression sucks. He said, so I talked to my wife about it. And she said, yeah, that's great. Let's just be open to sleeping with whoever. And he goes, I'm kind of the gas pedal. Like, we'll kind of get out there. And she was kind of the brake. She reels me in if it gets too out of control. In other words, he's like, I'll do it as long as I'm good at it. And then she... Reigns me in when she gets uncomfortable with it. And the question our culture would ask would say, hey, if God is good, then why is that a big deal? If he's a sexual being, then maybe he should be able to do whatever makes him happy. If God is good, then why? That becomes the question that we start asking about God. You see, if, if our concept of God, if God's identity, if it is, if it is rooted in the circumstances of our life, then God's goodness becomes conditional based upon the conditions of our lives. And here's the thing, in a hurried culture, in a rapidly changing culture where everything is constantly shifting, then our concept of God ends up having to shift as well. And we end up being more like tumbleweeds rolling along with nothing to root ourselves in. And this is where Isaiah found himself at the beginning of Isaiah six. Everything he had hoped from God was shifting, was collapsing right out from underneath him. And he says, in the year of death, in the year where all felt hopeless, in the year where Israel and Judah seemed to be falling from honor, he said, in that year, I saw the Lord. And here's the good news, you know, I don't know how many of you were in a place this morning where it feels like everything's falling apart. You see, this is the place where God loves to meet us the most. And so Isaiah heads to the temple that day You know, kind of interesting, He probably the the last one he thought he would encounter in the temple was God. (laughs) Isn't that true of so many of us? We come to church on Sunday and we know, yeah, we'll see our friends, we'll see some people that we like. The last one we actually think we're gonna meet with is God. And Isaiah shows up, he comes to the temple and he sees something that he's never seen before. He's there worshiping in the temple and then suddenly, boom, his eyes are open and he sees God in a way that he's never seen him before. He says, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. I saw him. Not the God I thought I believed in, but Yahweh, God Almighty. He was high and exalted. He said he's so big that the robe, the the, the train of his robe, which was a sign of power in ancient Near Near East, it began to fill the temple. The temple was this huge structure. And he's like, I look and his robe is just by itself is filling the temple. He said, and he's exalted on high and there's these strange creatures. He calls them seraphim. It's the only place they show up in the Bible. Seraphim literally is a translation. It's basically a, a flaming serpent. He said, there's these crazy looking flaming serpents with six wings and they're flying all around his throne. And what, what Isaiah is beholding is the glory of God. And he sees it and these seraphims start calling out to one another. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, Yahweh, God Almighty. His glory fills the entire earth. Now that phrase has become a, a chorus in, worship, in Christian worship songs, but what in the world does it really mean? Holy, holy, holy. You know, holy was this Hebrew word to try to communicate that something was completely set apart from anything else we could conceive of or imagine or compartmentalize. In other words, they're saying, listen, God is holy. He's not the concept of God you thought you have. He's so much more, so much more set apart than you could ever conceive of on your own. And I love it. They say holy. They don't just say it once or twice, three times. You know, in the Hebrew language, if you wanted to really emphasize something, if you wanted to assign a superlative, you know, superlatives when you're in high school, it's like, yeah, who's best looking, most popular, most likely to succeed, yada, yada, yada. But in Hebrew, you didn't use word like most or best or biggest, you just repeated the word when you really wanted to add superlative or emphasis. So we see this play out, for example, in Genesis 14, there's this random story where there's a battle going on, and it says some of the people in the battle fell into tar pits, that's what the English says. But apparently these pits were really tremendous because whole armies were falling into them. And so literally what it says in Genesis 14, it says they fell into pits pits. Apparently they were like really pity pits. You know, they're like really large. These guys are falling into them, they're massive. Other places in the Bible where it's trying to communicate about pure gold, it will say gold, gold. Hebrew will repeat a word to try to add superlative, try to add emphasis to a word. And here you have these seraphim, these creatures flying before God Almighty. And they don't just repeat it once, but twice. It's holy, holy, holy. Isaiah, your concept of God is too small. It's too finite, it's too little. He's holy. He's set apart from anything you could ever understand. And then it says, the whole earth is full of his glory. You know, glory is another one of those words that we throw around in Christian circles or or in any circle. We don't really understand. You know, we'll talk about the word glory as in like when a quarterback wins a Super Bowl and we say, yeah, he had his moment of glory. Glory feels like this passing moment in the way that we use it. You see, for God, glory was not about a moment. It wasn't because God won the football game that he had glory, it's just because of who he is. It doesn't pass, it doesn't fade. And the word glory in Hebrew actually uh, connotes a weightiness, a weight. In other words, it said the glory of God filled the earth. It's the weight of God fills the earth. And Isaiah sees it and it says the temple begins to like just tremble under it. I don't know if you've ever been given like a weight to carry that was too heavy for you? If you're anything like me, it's given to you and you try to like pretend you can handle it anyways until you hold it. (laughs) And then what happens if you hold it for too long? Corey's laughing, he's never carried a weight that was too heavy for him. Dude's like so strong. When you see him later, you know what I'm talking about. You know, if they give you a weight and it's too heavy and you try to carry it, what happens? Like you just start shaking, right? Like I'm trying to carry this thing, but it's just too heavy for me. And what Isaiah is seeing is that the weight of God, the glory of God makes the, te- the temple tremble. Psalm 99 says, the Lord reigns, the earth trembles. Guys, the earth, the planet that we stand on that holds us up, that underneath the glory, the weight of God, the earth itself trembles because it can't sustain the weight and the glory of God Almighty. This is who God is. He's huge. He's massive. He's bigger, stronger, mightier than anything you've ever conceived of or tried to imagine. And Isaiah is standing there and he sees it. He sees the glory of God in its fullness. But it doesn't just stop with the glory. Immediately, he sees all of this happening. The temple starts shaking. And look at Isaiah's response. He goes, woe to me, woe to me. When you hear a prophet say, woe, It's not just like, oh, I'm kind (laughs) of sad. It's a curse. He said, oh, I am cursed. I'm in serious trouble. I'm a a man of unclean lips. I live amongst unclean people. And I have seen the King, Yahweh, God Almighty. Whoa, woe to me, God. This is is a, a vision of God that we don't always like to talk about. It's like we want God to be kind of this like snuggly teddy bear that we get in his presence and we suddenly feel better, but that's not what happens to Isaiah. Man, he comes into God's presence, he sees the glory of God, and he immediately is like, I'm about to be crushed. God is terrifying. He's infinitely bigger than you could ever imagine. And Isaiah goes, whoa, woe to me. You see, what happens is Isaiah becomes immediately aware that there's this glory and there's just this gap between him and God's glory. who he is compared to that God, man, there's a massive gap, and he doesn't know how to overcome it, and he's afraid he's going to be crushed. Now, again, we don't know what to do with this, because we don't like to think of God as scary. We don't like to think of fearing God, but really what's going on here is just a comparison game. We all like to play the comparison game. I mean, I know I do. I wish I didn't, but I do. I'm sure all of you do as well. In other words, here's what the comparison game is, like kind of measuring myself compared by the people around me And man, if I feel like I'm smarter, better looking, faster, more popular, then I feel pretty good about myself. I'll surround myself with people that I feel like I'm a little higher than. Am I the only one? No, you guys aren't like that? But then suddenly you get around somebody who's a little bit better looking, more popular, smarter, more well known, and suddenly you begin to feel a little bit lower than you did before, right? It's what'll happen when I bring Corey up here later and introduce him. Like Suddenly you guys are gonna be looking at my arms. You're gonna be like, dude, Aaron is such a weakling. You know, The comparison game. When you find yourselves around somebody who's, who's smarter than you, faster than you, stronger than you, here's how it's played out in my life. I remember um, when I lived in Vancouver, you know, I played guitar, I'm a guitar player. And in Vancouver, British Columbia, it doesn't have quite the music scene that Nashville does. And, you know, I played music in a band and man, I loved it. Like all the guys in my band, they puffed up my ego. They was like, man, you're, you're so good, Aaron. And they would like compliment me. They'd be like, man, you could be a studio musician. I'm like, I know, thanks guys. Thanks, really appreciate it, you know? It was like, I loved it. It was amazing. And you guys all know where this is going. Then I moved to where? Nashville. It's a little too close to home for some of you. You came here thinking you were just gonna be the next thing, you know? And then you have the comparison game, right? I'll just talk about myself. It's like in Vancouver, man, I was just it. I loved playing guitar. I loved, I'd play shows, people would come. I moved to Nashville. I'm just the dude that has a guitar in his living room. Seriously. Like, compared to some of the musicians that are sitting in this room right now, I'm like, nothing. It's the comparison game. And what happens when you come into God's presence, into the glory of God, the holy God, suddenly we just realize, man, how small I am, how finite I am, how little I am, but it's not just about size, right? Sometimes I realize, man, how unloving I am. God, oh, that... I'm so unloving, how selfish I am, how sinful I am. When you come into the presence of the God instead of a concept of God, suddenly all those things are laid bare and we become aware of them. And Isaiah says, woe to me. But here's what I love is that God, we see him in his glory, we become aware of the gap just like Isaiah. But look what God does. God makes this move towards Isaiah. He says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar, and he flew towards him. Now, it sounds kind of terrifying. Like, you're gonna touch my face with that burning coal? I don't know if I want that, but here's what's happening. He goes to the altar. It was the altar of atonement. Now, atonement, if you just think about that word, if you break it down, it literally means at one Isaiah, becoming aware of God's glory and the gap between him and God, what he needs is at one with God Almighty and God says, hey, I got this. And on this altar where in ancient Israel they would have offered sacrifices to try to accomplish at-one-ment, this seraphim gets this coal and he comes over and he touches his lips and he says, hey, listen, your sin is taken away, your guilt is done away with, you're good. Stand right here in the presence of glorious God. And here's what you need to hear is that we won't all encounter God in a temple like this where a seraphim will get a coal off of an altar, but God has initiated contact with us. God Almighty, the glorious God, he has come to earth in Jesus Christ Christ, and he didn't get a coal off of the altar and stick it on our face. He climbed up on the altar himself, became the sacrificial animal, and bridged the gap between us and God Almighty. And this is the good news of the gospel, is that we have a God who's glorious, powerful, mighty, terrifying, and yet he is a God of grace and kindness and compassion, and he has drawn near to us. He initiates that. You can imagine Isaiah terrified and now suddenly being welcomed into the glorious presence of God. And this is the invitation open to every single one of us. Too often we try to live on a vision that makes God a concept that we keep rearranging until it fits the way we want him to. And God goes, I am too big for that. And there are going to be times in your life where you encounter God and you feel small and the temptation is to run away and try to convince yourself you more than you are. Let the reality sink in. I am small. You are small. We are all seemingly insignificant in the face of that mighty God. And yet that God looks at us and he says, I know your name and I have purpose for you and meaning for you. And I sent my son to die for you. He is both all glorious and he is all gracious. He is both. He's our father, the king. And he longs for us to know him. And he has initiated every way possible to make that happen. So now we wonder why in the world that Isaiah said, yeah, I'll go, because he had that encounter. And this is the encounter that's open to all of us. God says, man, I want you to live out a vision of who I really am, but you gotta know me. You gotta find me. Now, not all of us will have an encounter like Isaiah's. In fact, Isaiah is the only dude in the Bible that has that exact same encounter. But here's what Jesus says. He says, hey, seek and you will find, knock, The door will be open to you. Ask and you'll receive. He said, my father longs for you to know him. Come to me, come to me. So what does it look like to live deeply in a super hurried world? Man, we have got to be driven by a true vision of who God is and stop reducing him to who we want him to be. And we will no longer be tumbleweeds, but we will be like the trees planted by streams of water so here's what I wanna invite us into this morning as we get ready to go to communion. We've got communion on the bar. It's on the tables all around the room. We're gonna to come together. We're gonna to take the bread and take the cup. It is the reminder that Jesus initiated grace so that we could know the all-glorious God, and he wants us to know him. And so over communion, I have just a simple prayer point for you to pray with the people around you, and kind of a simple thing for each of us to pray to God. And so I'll put the slide up on the screen here with this question here. As you come to communion, pray with one another, say, God, will you help us to see you for who you are, both in the public and private places where we seek you. So both when we gather here, but also when we're alone at our house with our little prayer journal, God, will you help us to see you for who you are? And then second, I just want to challenge all of us just to ask, God, what is one thing, one thing you need me, want me to know about who you really are? So as we come to communion, just bring these questions together. Let's pray, let's thank, let's pursue the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, I love you so much. You are are glorious. You are the Almighty. Lord, our words just fall short of being able to comprehend who you are. God, thank you that although you are bigger and more terrifying than we could ever imagine, man, you are more gracious and kind than we could ever conceive of. Lord, would you draw near to us right now as we come to the table of grace? Would you remind us that you're the one, you've bridged the gap for us. May we come with confidence into your presence. And Lord, would you speak to us, help us to know you for who you are. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.